This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Jacqueline Winspear about her latest standalone novel, The White Lady. Jacqueline Winspear is best known for her series featuring Maisie Dobbs, a London costermonger's daughter who, through a combination of raw intelligence, determination, and luck, works her way up through domestic service to a college education, serves as a battlefield nurse during the First World War, and in 1929 opens her own investigative agency. The White Lady covers some of the same territory, but from a different angle and with a broader chronological range. At the most basic level, the title refers to the story's heroine, Eleanor White, who in 1947 has found her way to a village in Kent. The first person we meet in the novel, however, is a young mother who has just come down from London. Kent, England, 1947. Every morning, as Rose Mackey leaned over the bars of the wooden cot and picked up her three-year-old daughter, she gave thanks for the cottage. She gave thanks for the roof over her head, and she gave thanks for the fact that she wasn't putting up with Jim's mum and dad, and she wasn't living in a London prefab set among the thousands of other London prefabs built in haste to accommodate families left homeless during six years of war. She gave thanks because her little Susie could run across fields in fresh country air and the child didn't have to wear a scarf over her nose to protect her tiny lungs from the lumpy yellow-green London smog that looked like something nasty the dog had brought up. Just the thought of those pea supers made Rose feel queasy. And now, please join me in welcoming Jacqueline Winspear. Hello, Jackie. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. Well, thank you very much indeed for inviting me to talk with you. It's uh, very exciting. Thank you. Tell us a bit to start off about how you became a novelist, specifically a novelist specializing in the long-term effects of World War I, which was rather the forgotten war when your first Maisie Dobbs novel appeared. Well, first of all, I think it's probably a forgotten war in the United States, but it certainly isn't uh, in the United Kingdom and indeed throughout uh, what we call the the Commonwealth. You know, um, I I can always remember 
an NPR interview years ago when there was a discussion about the First World War and a Canadian gentleman called in and said, you know, and it was about this question, is it a forgotten war? And the Canadian gentleman said, you know, here in Canada, we have a, a real sense of lest we forget. And I think that really summed it up, um, you know, that sense, which which is sort of missing in the United States, which has always staggered me. Um, and just as a preamble, the re- one of the reasons it staggers me is because the United States lost double the men in uh, the, the Great War than it did in Vietnam. And although a purist would say, well, died of the flu, but then not everyone who died in Vietnam died in combat. Um, but how did I become a novelist specializing in this area? I would say entirely by accident. Um, in my writing, quote, unquote, career, which I, my early writing career I had at the same time as a day job, I was concentrating on the personal essay and in articles and essays. And I really thought that one day when I wrote a book, it would be nonfiction. It would be a biography. It would be about a time and place. And then one day, excuse me, Maisie Dobbs literally walked into my life. I mean, this character, this woman who had uh, come of age in the Great War, uh, literally came to me while I was stuck in traffic. I mean, it was like watching a movie. Um, and in fact, I've always laughed because I was, <laughs> I'm a bit of a daydreamer, I'll confess. But as I was stuck in traffic on a very rainy day in California, and we know it never rains in California, it pours, particularly lately. But. I I mean, it it was like watching a movie in my mind's eye. You know, I saw this woman come up through Warren Street Station, uh, speak to a newspaper vendor, walk down the street, and she took out an envelope with two keys and walked up the stairs, and she was in her new office. And and then I heard all this honking behind me and uh, and someone shouting out, are you waiting for any particular shade of green, lady? Um, (laughs) I I know. That's that's how it goes. But Excuse me. Anyway, um, I often refer to that as my moment of artistic grace, because by the time I got to work, I pretty much had that whole story in my head. And I came home and and wrote the first chapter of what became my first um, historical novel, which was Maisie Dobbs. And that that chapter hardly changed to publication day. It just, boom, flowed out of me, which was a real surprise in many ways. It was a shock. But so I've often referred to that as my moment of artistic grace, because that's how it felt. I was being given a gift and the gift was a story to tell. But I I don't believe those moments happen in a vacuum. I have always been interested, not only in the Great War, but that period of time from just before the Great War to pretty much when rationing ended in Britain after the Second World War. It was such a time of enormous social change and technological change, medical changes, you name it. But I was particularly interested in the lives of women and in the history of women in that, uh, in that time period. And I had been since I was a kid. So, you know, it's kind of everything came together. Everything came together. Um, yes, in during the, the, the Great War, women in the UK went to war in, in numbers not seen before. And when I say went to war, it wasn't just the business of being involved directly um, overseas in wartime roles, but the roles that women took up in in the UK to allow men to be sent to the battlefield. So a lot of fields of endeavor was left untouched by a woman's hand. Um, And in fact, here's an interesting thing. There was a little handbook given to American soldiers who were coming in 
during the Second World War, after Pearl Harbor, they were deployed to the UK and they were given a little handbook. And it said things like, you know, get used to drinking tea and not coffee and don't expect everything to look uh, like the history books because this country has had two years of bombing already and things like that. But it also said, when you see a woman wearing her stripes and an ordinary soldier, you know, um, saluting her, be aware she's earned those stripes and she's earned them in two world wars. And, and so, you know, it was that sense of uh, women's role in wartime that, that drew me in, even as a kid, even as a kid. I mean, I knew my grandmother had um, uh, been, you know, she was, she was a munitions worker in the First World War. And as a young woman, you know, 19 years old, living away from home in a hostel so they could get to work early and work late. But here's the interesting thing. At that time, she was earning good money. Suddenly, she was earning good money, and women who were earning money suddenly had choices they didn't have before. She wanted to go out for a drink with her friends without a chaperone. She could, you know. Um, so anyway, it's, it, it, it's an interesting time, an interesting time. And that, once I'd written my first Maisie Dobbs, then I had an opportunity to sit there and think, what do I want to create? You know, I didn't even know I was writing a series, Carolyn. I had no idea this was going to be a series until my then editor called me as Maisie Dobbs went into production and said, can we talk about the next book in the series? And I thought, oh boy. <laughs> and uh, fortunately I had ideas, but I knew I wanted to create an arc to an overall series as well as an arc to every story, if that makes sense. Yes, it does make sense. And I'm so glad you wrote a series because that first novel is really haunting and beautiful. I loved it. Thank you. Thank you very much. This feeds into Eleanor White. Now, how would you describe her as a personality uh, when we first meet her? How does she compare with Maisie or contrast with Maisie? I, I don't think you can compare her with Maisie Dobbs just because she's a woman of a certain era. Um, she's a different kind of person with a different kind of history. So she's, uh, and, and she's part European, part British. And we only, she only really gets to grips with the second part at the age of you know, 14 when she's back in, when she's in England to live really for the first time. Um, but, but here's the thing with Maisie Dobbs, as I said, with the series, I wanted to take uh, a, not just Maisie Dobbs, but her cast of characters, this ensemble, through that period of time. But I always wanted to do it with one character and in one novel. And I didn't know how I was going to do it. How do you, and I wanted to take someone from girlhood to womanhood. I didn't know how I was going to do it. <clears throat> I mean, I knew that uh, children have always been involved in war, whether we like it or not. But I, I just wasn't sure until I was doing research for um, A Lesson in Secrets, the novel A Lesson in Secrets. And I had this character um, who had once been part of La Dame Blanche. And, and I found out about that by reading a book on female intelligence in um, World War One, And I knew once I understood more about the girls and women who worked in resistance during World War One in Belgium, in occupied Belgium, I, I, I knew I, ha I had something there for my later book. It is such a long story because of the way that Eleanor came to me. And literally, I, I mean, her first appearance as a character in my life was when I was a child. And um, but she is different from Maisie 
uh, Maisie is very much um, has been involved in, if you will, the peacetime type role in a time of war. Eleanor has been trained as a killer. She's been trained in resistance work, in uh, sabotage, in um, you know underground operations and so on from childhood. And I was really curious as what does that do to you when another war comes along? And, and I, I'll tell you the the genesis of that question to me was my grandfather, who was severely wounded at the Battle of the Somme in 1916. He was still removing shrapnel from his legs the day he died in 1966. And he was shell-shocked and gassed. And he had been through that terrible war, bore the, the wound. And I always wondered, how did he feel when he saw my dad and my dad's brother in uniform in the Second World War? Two boys, effectively. My dad, you know, 17, 18 years old being trained as an explosives expert, and his brother, you know, on the beaches of Dunkirk. How did he feel? And, and so that started this question in my mind. And, and another sort of element of my curiosity was about my, my grandmother, who had been a munitions worker in World War I, and who later in World War II saw two of her daughters go into the services. My, one aunt was in the Air Force. She was an Air Force driver, and the other one was in the um, Women's Royal Naval Service, the, the Rens. How did she feel seeing them go off to war and also saying goodbye to her other children who were evacuated? Um, and my mother had a particularly harrowing experience of uh, evacuation along with her, along with her uh, younger siblings. But so that, there was that question, and I really wanted to try and explore that a character you know and the 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 you know the El eleanor white as she became who had this experience of war in girlhood and there she is again in womanhood and they're coming for her again because they know she's got the skills they need to work in undercover resistance roles and there was obviously as i was a kid you know I mean, all kids are interested in secrets, but there's that idea of what does it mean to work in secret? What does it mean to work in a role where if something bad happens, no one's going to help you because you, you, that's it. You, don't, you almost don't exist. Um, so, so that was one of my questions. That was one of my And then and I might add, the other thing is to then plunge that woman into a different kind of war, and that's the war on the streets in, in uh post-war London, you know, the, the war of organized crime. Yes, and I'd like to get back to that in just a second because the question that you raised uh, about the effects of being trained as a killer in childhood on another war uh, is also, in this novel, it's, it's in part a question of how those skills affect her in peacetime. But before we talk about that, I, you said in passing that Eleanor had come to you as a child. How, how did that happen? When I was a child, my parents uh, lived in what was referred to as a tied cottage, which meant it was tied to the land and to my, actually to my mother's job. She was the bookkeeper for um, a farmer who had the tenancy for four local farms set in a massive, massive area of forest, which was actually crown land and had been for centuries. He had, uh, he, he was a tenant and his family had been tenants for a long time. So my mum did the books and my dad worked somewhere else. 
And, um, you know, almost every day we would set off, my mum and I, down to the farm, which is where the main office was, and we'd walk through the woods and then through a couple of fields and then we'd be at the farmhouse. But before that, we had to walk along the road for a little bit. And invariably, we'd see this lady coming towards us. And she was very, you know, kids are really drawn to, to instinctively drawn to people that look a bit different. She always looked as if she was trying to hide. I mean, she had her coat collar pulled up, hat pulled down over her face, even when she was, even in summertime. And my mom always said a cheery good morning. And this woman, she would nod, occasionally mumble hello or whatever. And then one morning I decided to chirp up and say hello to her. And suddenly she smiled and said hello. And that was the start of her saying hello properly. And, but the funny thing is, on that first morning, we, we walked past her. So we went into the woods to our forest path. And my mom leaned down and said to me, she's one of those women that parachuted into France during the war. And, of course, I said, what's a parachute? And, you know, it was, and I think that's when my mom realized, well, that's a bit of a story that could wait for another time. Uh, and, and later on, she told me that the, the understanding was, although nobody sort of nattered about it in the village, which was, again, another mile and a half away from the cottage, that, um, that, that this woman indeed had been an operative in World War II. She had parachuted into Europe. And that's how she lived in a grace and favor property that was in, near the, in the same area of woodland. Um, and, and, you know, it belonged to the crown. It was a rather large cottage. And she was um, allowed to live in that property until the day she died. We never knew her name, unlike Eleanor White. And so, you know, it stayed with me, Carolyn. And what happened was, I think, as I got more interested in World War you know, One and World War Two, I, I got really interested in how, um, in the people that, men and women who lived in secret, who had, underground roles, so to speak, the subterfuge. Yes, I mean, that's the first scene of the novel is, is, uh, is you are Susie, in effect, uh, in that first scene. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not Susie, but I I recounted the experience as Susie's experience. Yeah, I'm not Susie. Yeah, no, no, of course not, (laughs) not really. But yes, no, no, it's fascinating. That answers my next question is why I set the novel in Kent. But let's get back to uh, Rose, and then we'll talk about Eleanor and her response. Um, So the first person we meet is actually Rose Mack. Who was Rose and what's brought her from London to Kent? Well, Rose Mackey is the wife of Jim Mackey. And uh, Jim, as readers will find out, is one of the sons uh, of a of a crime family, of uh, an organized crime, a rather powerful crime family in London. Um, he... His role during the war, he was based in London for part of that because he was with bomb disposal, uh, which was quite a terrifying role to be in. But he was based in London and he meets his wife, Rose, and they're both young. You know, they're not, you know, in their late 20s or early 30s. They're they're basically kids and they meet and he realizes that Rose is someone he he could adore because she's just one of those solid people you meet. She's down to earth, local girl. She's had her fair share of tragedy. You know, she's, she's lost her family in a bombing while she was evacuated. And, um, but she's a solid kind of person and, and they get married, they have a little girl, but Jim 
he knows that he wants to get away from his family. He wants to get away from this toxicity of crime because he's done his time indeed um, before the war as a as a young boy in Borstal, which is a which was a, uh, a, a an institution for young offenders, and they go they escape to the country. And they are very fortunate and they quickly get, you know, he quickly gets a job because the farmer needs help. The land girls, the land army girls have all gone home and a lot of people didn't, a lot of men didn't come home from the war. So he gets a job as a farmhand because he says, you know, I can turn my hand to everything. And and I know that sounds more about Jim, but Rose is his anchor. Rose is solid, you know, down to earth salt of the earth type girl and uh she doesn't she's not a bully she's not laying down the law but he's her life as is her daughter and she does everything to make life good for them and uh, she knows that jim needed to get away from this family so she was prepared to work hard as well and she does she gets a job cleaning the farmer the farmer's wife's house and she gets a job in a tea shop and so on and so forth um yeah rose is solid rose is solid and i i liked rose very much as a character she's not a big main character but she's that has an underpinning of um being an anchor in the story and how does Eleanor become involved in helping them, especially since at the very beginning of the story, she's exactly like that woman that you just described. Uh, she's very much self-contained, shall we say. <laughs> so what makes her feel that she she should be involved with them um, and that she's capable of, being, of tackling his family? It's interesting because even Eleanor has to think about this later. What made me act as I did? And what made and, and readers will soon find out how that happens later in the book or why that happens. But she becomes involved with the the Mackie family, Jim and Rose Mackie, and when she sees that Rose is is crying outside the house, she has been and, and looks as if she has been beaten in some way, and she can hear this fierce row going in on inside the Mackie cottage. You know, she's on her walk in the morning and she sees Rose in the distance pacing outside the, the cottage with, with the baby, with the young, you know, um, daughter in her arms. And suddenly Eleanor is filled with anger. It's a real knee-jerk reaction from the heart. And she feels this, this visceral need I have to do something about this. And Rose, you know, oh, it's nothing. I'm going to make those boys a cup of tea. They're just having an argument. And she makes up a story. And Eleanor knows a made-up story when she hears it. Eleanor goes back to her house. And we soon find out that there's a lot about Eleanor's life that she has not left behind. And that this is a woman to be reckoned with because she sets off in this blaze of, of... anger mixed with grief to see what she can do to protect that young family down the street, particularly the little girl, particularly the little girl from the hands of this family. That's how she gets involved. So this is, in effect, a dual timeline story, but it's not a dual timeline story in the sense that we have a present day character and a past one. The dual timeline is both um, Eleanor's past and Eleanor's present in 1947. So what made you decide to tell the story in that way? 
you know, it, it's interesting, Karen, because sometimes I don't know that we make these definite big decisions. I think some storytelling happens in a very organic way. I knew I wanted to braid her lives together, if, if you will. I wanted to braid her lives together until you, they, were, they joined at the bottom of the, if you can imagine a long braid and joining at the bottom, you know, so that, um, you know, the, the story is told from two perspectives until there is an understanding of, oh, this is what drives her. This is what drives her. And so you get a sense of, of not so much perhaps her reflecting consciously on the past, but you get to understand this past that is, is, is inside her. It's coiled up like a snake waiting to, you know, really dictating every move she makes in her quest to protect this young family and to wrest them away from you know the from the the world of organized crime that they have been desperate to get away from and uh, so it, it, as i said it happened organically having said that once i knew that that's how i wanted to do it and that's how i wanted to weave this story i had to really think hard about it and, and it was the first time in my life i've ever storyboarded something um in that i got a um, you know, sort of like a board and an easel, lots of little cards. I wrote down all the key scenes, every single key scene and the date, you know, or the year, let's say, roughly the month and year. And I moved them around on that board until I roughly had, roughly had the, the, the time, the, the dual timelines and how they would come together, how they would meld like two colors coming together to form another color, you know, the, the, uh, the red and the, the blue coming together as purple. <laughs> it's the only way I can describe it. And they do. So we won't talk about that because we finding out what drives Eleanor is, is a big part of the story. Um, but do tell us where she is in 1914. I mean that both emotionally um, and in terms of where she is in her life, as well as literally where she is in 1914. Well, Eleanor is a. She was born in in uh, 1904. She has a a really happy home life. You know, we we meet her initially as, as sort of a ten year old. You know, she's she's happy. She's got a, a, a father, a mother, and an older sister, Cecily. And um, but we meet her just as you know the war is starting. Belgium has been invaded. People are rushing to the coast to try and get on the last boats out to get them across the channel to Britain. There was actually a huge influx of um, Belgian um, refugees who came into into um, uh, Britain in, in the Great War. And uh, so they're among them. But unfortunately, they uh, they end up being turned back at the port. The last boat has gone. But, but she says a happy life. Uh, the background is that her her father and mother met in in Belgium. Her mother was the governess to a, a British family of some worth, and her father is a sort of a, a young diamond merchant. And the thing is that they have roughly the same name. His name is Thomas De Witt, and she is um, Charlotte White. And that's something that connects them, and they begin courting. As the as the saying goes, and it always becomes a joke in the household that you know he's got his three white ladies because of the two daughters. 
And, you know, Eleanor adores her father. She adores her mother, but she adores her father. You know, he's expected much of his daughters. He wanted daughters with sharp elbows. And he wanted little Amazons, you know, although there is some, uh, you know, worry about Cecily, who's now a teenager and is getting a little bit of the teenage flounce going on. But they are well-educated girls. But Thomas goes to war, and we know he's not coming back. And uh, so the, there's this relationship between the three women of the household, which is not always smooth, although the girls adore their mother, they adore each other, but they are living in great tension, so to speak. And, uh, you know, there, there is some, you know, there's some sibling conflict between, you know, Eleanor and Cecily. Um, but they're, it's a happy family life, and then war comes. And uh, two years into the war, um, and much more is asked of those three women. Does that answer your question? (laughs) Yes, yes, it does. Um, They make the acquaintance of a woman who is known only as Isabel. Um, I know you don't want to tell us a lot about her, probably, but tell us a bit about her, because it's related to the organization that you mentioned earlier, La Dame Blanche. Yes, um, well, first of all, La Dame Blanche was uh, an organization actually bankrolled by the British from a base in the Netherlands. And uh, to give a little bit more information on that, um, it was named after the, uh, it's, it's the white lady. And it was named for a character in German mythology the, that the appearance of a woman wearing white would herald the downfall of the Hohenzollern dynasty, which Actually, the Kaiser was part of that dynasty. And it wasn't exclusively, this um, resistance line wasn't exclusively made up of women. There were men in the line. But in Belgium, if men weren't away in the Belgian army, boys who were on the cusp of manhood, right up to the elderly who still looked like they could get about, were taken away by the occupying German army and either sent to work camps or they were slaughtered, which left women because they thought women wouldn't ever rise up. There was no problem from women. And uh, that's why women were recruited from, and we're talking from girls right up to elderly women, to engage in resistance and espionage activity, including, if necessary, killing. Um, Isabel is a, uh, if you will, a recruiter and central person in Bel- in Belgium for that organization. And she's not old herself. She's, you know, everybody becomes older in a time of war. She's 24, but she's got a head on her shoulders. You know, she's not, she's not a child. She's not an old woman, but she's a mature person for her age. I think we'll leave it there um, because people should really go read it. <laughs> themselves what would you like people to take away from the white lady i i think what i would like people at the end of the day you know if you're writing fiction you're you're in the entertainment industry so people have got to be drawn into the story people have got to enjoy reading the story at some level perhaps more than anything i think it's it's the realization that how everyone can be drawn into the war machine not simply soldiers, whether male or female, and not simply the the other types of workers, but children are drawn into war. They're drawn into war to this day. Um, and and I don't mean just as, as observers, but as people who 
work in a time of war and are part of the war machine. So, and and that has been true of every single war from earliest times and right up to the present day. Um, So I think that's something to take away. Plus the, the fact that, you know, the, the, the bravery of ordinary people, the resilience and the, the, capacity for endurance in the most difficult times and that's I'm admittedly also a hallmark of my my series but I, I think that's true it's not that you know people are unnecessarily brave at the outset but they they show acts of extraordinary bravery and uh, I think uh, whether children are, you know are right to the elderly and uh, and that that can remain with people. I think that's another point. It can it doesn't go away. Yes, I think you make that point very well, especially in the Maisie Dobbs novels. It's very clear. Um, <laughs> so we all know that um, publishing takes a while. Are you going back to Maisie Dobbs now, or are you working on something new? Um, well, I, I will be going back to Maisie Dobbs, but um, at the moment, I mean, a lot of my focus has been on. Uh, the launch of the white lady a lot of writing comes with that <laughs> and uh but i also you know i'm a great believer as a writer in cross training so i write articles and essays and i i write other things um but definitely you know my as soon as this this book is launched and so on, my my focus is going to be on on uh Maisie Dobbs and uh some other ideas <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. I really enjoyed talking with you, Jackie. And you too. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Jacqueline Winspear about The White Lady. Find out more about her at JacquelineWinspear.com. Keep up with our news by liking or following New Books Network on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. You can find out more about me and my books at cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.